Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyden Gray Center for the study of the administrative state. I'm Adam White. In recent years, one of the most significant regulatory reforms we've seen at the federal level was Executive Order 13771, which imposed a kind of regulatory budget on federal agencies for the first time. Now, President Biden uh, repealed the executive order. Maybe a future administration will bring it back in, in the same or a similar form. But about a year ago, the Gray Center thought the time was right to take stock of what we learned about regulatory budgets at the federal level, at the state level, and abroad. So in conjunction with our friends at the Mercatus Center, we put together a, a roundtable inviting scholars to, to write about these things. And, and I'm happy to say that the papers were published recently as an online symposium at the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. We'll, we'll link to the essays in the show notes here. Uh, in addition to the, the main papers, there was a nice introductory essay by Senator James Lankford thinking about regulatory budgets. So now that that symposium's online, we wanted to invite one of our friends back to talk about his paper. So our special guest this week is Anthony Campo. He's Director of Government Regulation and Counsel at Clark Hill, but perhaps more importantly for, for present present purposes. He was chief of staff and counselor at the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs of the White House when Executive Order 13771 was first being implemented. And his essay in the symposium is titled Regulatory Budgeting in the U.S. Federal Government, a firsthand account of the initial experience and recommendations for future regulatory budgets. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Adam, and thank you very much to the Gray Center for organizing this paper symposium and uh, uh, inviting me to, to talk about the regulatory budget uh, here today. I think it's an incredibly important topic, and I'm very pleased to, to be uh, chatting with you about it today. Well, we're so glad that you could be here. And again, couldn't be happier with how this symposium turned out. I hope it's widely read. Uh, and before we jump into things, uh, I also want to welcome back our research director, Jace LinkedIn. Jace, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. As always, Jace will be joining in with the questions. Well, let me throw out the first question, and it's just a, the, the, the biggest of big picture questions. Um, how do you think back about the original goals of, of 13771? What can you tell us about uh, how it came about? Um, what were the challenges of, of, of its initial implementation? Thanks, Adam. Well, you know, I think that the regulatory budget is something that, you know, a lot of us have thought about and worked on and, and hoped to, to see in place one day, you know, for, for many, many years. This is something a lot of conservatives have wanted to see and others across the philosophical spectrum. And um, and it just. I'm not quite sure why it, it never got into place before, but, you know, we were we worked under a president who was willing to take a take a run at it. Um, and that was fantastic. Um, and uh, it gave us the opportunity to, to do something that we had wanted to do for a long time, to take something from theory to practice uh, and, and actually build it in the real world. And, um, uh, and it was pretty incredible. Before I was here at the Gray Center, uh, years ago, I, I practiced law with C. Boyd and Gray. Uh, and so over the years, I've heard lots of stories about the original implementation of President Reagan's uh, very first executive order uh, on, on OIRA and regulatory reform. And from Boyden and, and from others of, from that team, you know, I, I learned a lot about how difficult it was to really implement it over time. I mean, it's not as though the original OIRA executive order was announced and suddenly there was this 
fully formed implementation and, and so on. These things really took time across multiple administrations. Right. And, and just in the very first instance, you know, Boyden loves to tell the story about um, the, the agency councils being invited to a, a working group to look at what they thought was a draft of the original executive order 12291. Uh, and the, as he tells the story, these, these council were all had their pens out, were marking up the draft you know, with lots of objections to, to this proposed executive order, only to get to the last page and find that President Reagan had already signed it. Um, yeah. And Boy- Boyden loves to tell that story because it's a good reminder that, you know, these things don't implement themselves. They take, you know, real effort. And, and even w- in an administration where everybody's on the same page and rowing generally in the same direction, there's a lot of mixed views about how, what, this, what, what this kind of order actually means in practice, how it's best implemented. Um, you know, I, I, without wanting to delve too far into the behind the scenes things, I mean, what, what's just your general sense or recollection of what it was like to, to implement this in the, in the first instance? Well, I would say, you know, sort of from the beginning all, all the way through while I was there, I mean, there was pretty broad consensus that this was necessary. So this was not something where, you know, there was a lot of infighting over, you know, somebody really wanted to take it down. I mean, there was a there's a pretty broad, I think, understanding that, um, you know, there's a lot of regulatory activity that exceeds uh, the direct statutory authority. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of that discretionary regulatory activity that has been, you know, e- extremely <clears throat> um, uh, costly. And in many cases where the costs in our view, you know, were not justified by the benefits and, uh, of those regulations. And we thought that the, the budget would help to sort of bring some alignment there. Um, and there wasn't really a lot of, there, there was not really that type of infighting. I remember that story from Boyden um, about that initial experience with uh, 12291. And we just, I don't think there was that type of that thing here. Um, There's a lot of agreement, uh, but as you say, uh, you know, getting it up and running. I mean, we were constructing something new. We did not have this the budget before. So we were layering it as I get into my paper, we layered it on top of existing regulatory architecture that uh, Boyden and others helped to help to build uh, in the past. But, um, but it was something new. And yes, we, we learned along the way. Um, I think there was a, a lot of criticism up front that the uh, the executive order that uh, created the budget was, you know, overly simplistic. It didn't account for the co- complexities, nuances of the regulatory process. Um, you know, it ignored things like regulatory benefits, as as they uh, is was the one of the charges. Um, and uh, you know, I. I think pretty quickly we issued a draft guidance from uh, my old office, uh, OIRA, and then we followed it up with a final uh, guidance document, which really got into the details. And I think you'll find that a lot of my paper is actually just sort of relaying what's in that guidance, because it seemed that a lot of the critics of the budget just didn't read it. Um, They did not engage seriously with the the guidance, um, which really addresses a lot of their concerns. Um, And, you know, those the the things covered in that guidance are not the sorts of things you typically find in an executive order of the president. The executive order is directional. uh, It's it's clear. It provides some important uh, caveats, but then the granularity comes to the follow-on document from the agency, and that's what our guidance did. And that developing that was, you know, a very uh, professional effort. And I think, you know, you know, from uh, it was a lot of um, important contribution from uh, 
uh, not just political, but for a lot from professional staff, right? I mean, of, of the agency. Um, and so the, these are not, I think a lot of people criticize the budget because maybe they didn't like the president or something, but, but there were a lot of very serious people in there, both, you know, career uh, and political uh, officials who were working to make sure that it was uh, properly implemented, that it was carefully designed. Um, and I think it was, um, you know, I think it proved to be effective. And I think a lot of the critics, uh, uh, the, the criticism sort of fail under scrutiny um, uh, when you when you actually get into some of these details. And maybe I just add that that I think it probably just watching from the outside, it surely helped that the, the intellectual case for regulatory budgets had been made uh, for several years in the run up to this. Uh, you That's had right. in particular Jeff Rosen, who I guess at the beginning of the Trump administration was deputy secretary of transportation. But he had he had made the case for regulatory budgets uh, in an in a article in the Administrative Law Review with Brian Callanan, who I guess then went on to Treasury himself. And, and Jeff had a piece in National Affairs, too. And, and years earlier, you had Chris DeMuth, formerly of OIRA, uh, making a case for regulatory budgets. And you had folks like the Mercatus Center uh, and others who had really weighed in on this over the years. So it, one way that this is different, I guess, from 1981 is that you had a much more sustained intellectual and theoretical case for this. Uh, that combined with the fact that this administration had a number of people in it, the Trump administration had a number of people in it who who understood what the purpose of a regulatory budget was and the challenges of implementing it. That probably all helped quite a lot. That, that's that's right. And, um, you know, you mentioned Jeff. I mean, he is in, in many respects the godfather of this regulatory budget. And um, and we you know, we owe him an enormous debt of gratitude uh, and and all of those who who helped to lay the intellectual foundation um, and uh, and help to develop the uh, help to develop the architecture and implement it. I mean, this is there is no. You know, there is no victory in 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 Washington that is uh, owing to to one person. That is for sure, right? I mean, this is a this was a massive uh, effort across many uh, decades and across many you know organs of government and the executive branch. It was a it was a great um, a, a great uh, effort ac across the board. Um, but yes, uh, you are right, Adam. That the, that the the foundation had been laid. Um, and it had been tested in, in lots of other places. You know, this, the first time we had one in the U.S. federal government, but we've had them in states. We've had them in provinces in Canada. We've had them around the world. And we study those examples carefully. Marcus Peacock had a great paper um, a few years ago examining the experience in other countries. We studied what the United Kingdom did, their, their one-in-one-out program. We studied other programs around the world. And we learned a lot from those. And I think that... Um, that gave us a good, a very good sense of what, um, you know, how to get going with this. Jace, you, you, mentioned, oh, you mentioned the one in one out program over in the UK and a lot of the headlines and even scholarly criticism of the Trump administration's regulatory budget focused on the one in two out rule. Uh, but your paper in this symposium focused on what you said was the success of the budget coming from the reduction in overall regulatory cost. Can you talk about that and why that criticism might be misguided? Yeah, thanks, Jace. The the um, the one in two out feature of the budget, uh, as I say in my paper, has sort of come to uh, dominate the discussion of the regulatory budget when people 
to the extent people think about the regulatory budget, they think about it as a one in two out program generally. That's what most of the most of the literature covers. That's where the debate has been whether you know whether we got that part right. But as I say, as I discussed the paper, that is actually a subcomponent of the real budget, which is the dollar uh, cost uh, uh, cap um, or the cost allowance. Uh, as we've called it, and um, and not the other way around. So, so you have to anytime you want to promulgate a new regulation, you have to find two regulations to get rid of to make way for it. Well, that that is really a, a an instrument in service of the of the uh, zero dollar cost cap for for 2017, and then a, a, that changed that cap changed over time. Uh, based on sort of a, a ground up, a bottom up uh, effort with the agencies for the agencies to start the conversation with with the White House to lay out what they thought should be their budget. Um, <clears throat> right. So I think there's not been there hasn't been a tremendous amount of uh, criticism about the cost um, accounting. Uh, and I think that that's partially because it's pretty solid. Um, uh, yes. Uh, one of the criticisms is that, you know, well, we had. Um, you know, two small regulations identified, m- you know, for, for maybe for one economically significant regulation, that, that would maybe one criticism. Well, at the end of the day, the $0 cost cap is what is the real, you know, enforcement mechanism. Somebody, there may be some effort to try to game it on the one and two outside, but it doesn't, it can't be gamed on the $0 side. And that's the real effect. So across, across the four years, you know, OIRA's, you know, professional staff calculation is you know, just under $200 billion of savings uh, for the economy. And that's against a baseline of $0. Okay. So um, another important thing to think about is in Washington, right? A lot of our savings uh, uh, are, you know, a reduction in the rate of growth. Uh, and so maybe we'd reduce the rate of spending by 10% and we'd call it a 10% reduction and it's a big win, but it's still increasing. We actually took something, you know, every year, uh, you know, the, the rate of, uh, of, of uh, production of, of regulatory costs is enormous. We had calculated it at, uh, in the, at the, when we issued our second report as about $200 billion of new regulatory costs from the Obama administration in their first 21 months. And I think we had achieved a little over 33 billion at that point in savings. So, but the, but the savings was not 33 billion. It's actually the Delta, right? It's the roughly 230 billion. Um, that, that's the difference. And so, you know, we went down through the X axis uh, into negative territory. Um, and I think, um, you know, if you had read the, the critics said we had, you know, it just, it couldn't be done. Um, and this was a, a silly, a silly exercise. And I think we proved that actually, you know, for four years, all four years of the administration, we imposed on net no new regulatory costs. I think that's extraordinary. I don't think anybody thought it could be done. Even a lot of our friends thought, well, not, you know, good luck, have fun. That's a nice talking point, but it's not going to work. And, um, and we, we, I think we proved that it can work. Thanks. That was one of the questions I had when people are skeptical that you're going to be able to cut costs that way. And then other critics were saying you didn't focus on the benefits side. One of the obvious ways, it seems to me, to make it seem like there are reductions in cost is to really bump up the benefits side. So did the definition of regulatory benefits really change in those four years? Or how did you approach that side of it? 
Yeah, I, I think this is this is one of the most uh, this is one of the biggest misunderstandings. And I really I really tried in my paper to not, you know, um, attack those who had attacked us. Um, I, I like a lot of the people who wrote these uh, uh, criticisms. I think they're great people, great scholars. I respect their work. Um, but they there was a lot of um, there was a lot of misunderstanding, I think, about the design of the budget. Um, and they there, there was a view that, that we were not accounting for benefits. Um, because the budget looks at uh, the, the the this this you know the executive order talked about you know reducing regulatory costs, but all significant regulatory actions had to go through the OIRA process, which is uh, which is carried out pursuant to Executive Order twelve eight six six of President uh, Clinton, and that that process requires a careful accounting of costs and benefits and economic transfer effects. And so every significant action accounted for benefits. If, if an agency wanted to roll back an, uh, a rule that had uh, you know, tremendous benefits from the, from the previous administration, they had to engage that analysis. You can't ignore it. And we said that repeatedly. Uh, the agencies know that it's, it's in our guidance. The guidance says very clearly uh, twice, that executive order 12866 remains the uh, organizing mechanism for uh, regulatory review, that a, a consideration of benefits must be, uh, must be conducted. Um, and, uh, and if that didn't happen, then those rules couldn't, couldn't advance. So there was an integration of the budget with uh, a cost-benefit analysis, which I think is incredibly important. I think analysis is absolutely crucial. You know, a lot of these agencies are uh, exercising discretion granted to them decades ago. Um, and how do we make rational choices with, you know, broad grants of discretion? We use the tools of analysis. We don't want, uh, you know, policy necessarily to swing every every, you know, with a change of uh, administration, every time we, we may want, we, we want to use, you know, consistent analytical uh, framework for decision-making. And, uh, and that's what 12866 and OMB Circular A4 uh, lay out. Um, and they were, they continue to be required for all four years of the, uh, of the budget and were integrated with the budget. Thanks. Another thing you mentioned uh, was trying to give the agencies more ownership of the planning process. And you mentioned this in the context of uh, requiring them to address the regulatory budget as part of the unified regulatory agenda mm -hmm. um, as required by EO 12866. Yeah. How much was added to that process? How many regulations typically stay in either that proposed category or get implemented without first going into that agenda? Well, we had, you know, um, <clears throat> when we arrived, I, I think that the uh, agenda had not really, um, hadn't played a, a, a very significant uh, role or as significant a role for quite a while um, uh, as it did when we were there. We, um, the Administrative Conference of the United States the American Bar Association had recommended basically that OIRA, you know, uh, breathe new life into the agenda, that it was an important uh, uh, transparency uh, mechanism of the government. It, the agenda basically makes 
uh, clear, it takes a snapshot in time of all of the regulations in the pipeline of the government so that the public can see what the government's working on. I think that's incredibly important. I think that um, transparency in government is extremely important. I think it gets um, it gets short shrift sometimes, and I think it's a it's a it's a an area where you know we have a lot of agreement uh, across the philosophical spectrum. So I think it should be emphasized um, that it, it is important. We we try to um, revive the agenda, and a key feature of that was um, of that effort was getting rid of uh, a list that was known as the pending list that a scholar at ACUS uh, had identified. Uh, it, it came into being during the Obama administration. Um, and I will not attempt to, I, I will not, you know, venture a guess as to why they, they created it, but it's a, uh, it's a, it was a place where they could move regulations. Uh, they could put it on that list and then it would not be public. Um, while it was being developed. We did not think that was appropriate. We thought that it was important that the public be able to see everything in the pipeline. And by, take, by, by taking that step, um, you know, we got a lot of engagement on the agenda. So agencies really took that uh, planning effort seriously. They brought it into uh, alignment with the budget. We cut hundreds of rules, and I think over time, thousands of rules off the, off the agenda. Um, some people, you know, maybe mistakenly claimed those as deregulatory actions, claim, you know, removing rules from the agenda is not a deregulatory action, but it's nevertheless a good action, <laughs> uh, consistent with, you know, just transparency, fair notice, uh, and, and the budget. If you're not actually planning to do it, it shouldn't linger out there forever. Um, but those were choices that the agencies really needed to make, um, in, you know, in coordination with OIRA and the White House. Um, and so the agencies took the first and second and third and fourth cuts at those, right? There's a pass back process with OIRA, but the agencies lead that initiative to figure out which rules they want to proceed with, which ones they don't. And I think that's appropriate. They, you know, they know their dockets best. They know their subject matter best. We, we supplement it with a kind of complementary expertise, um, but they're in the best position to decide what should be on the agenda and then how to proceed with the rulemakings. And I think, um, you know, Jeff or others uh, could talk more directly about their experience within an agency, how they prioritize and decide which regulatory and deregulatory actions to proceed with. But this, but the budget put the onus on the agencies to come up with that. And I think, I, I do think that that's good. It should be, there should be direction from the White House, but it's, it's helpful to have them take the first cut. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, Adam, did you have something? I was say, Anthony, you, as you were working on this at the White House, and I don't think we've mentioned the obvious that you know the White House, the OIRA administrator at this point uh, that you worked with was was Naomi Rao, now Judge Naomi Rao, and previously Grace Center founder Naomi Rao. Um, but but as you look as you're talking about the, the the agencies, it makes me wonder what what did you and and Naomi learn from the agencies as as the implementation process rolled out. I mean, I'm surely you guys thought about a lot and you had ideas for how this would be implemented, but it was an iterative process over a few years and can you think back to anything in particular you you might have learned or been surprised by coming out of the agencies that you hadn't hadn't occurred to you on the way in? Well, um, you know, the uh, w one thing is that, of course, that uh, the regulatory dockets at each agency are, you know, they're unique, they're different. Um, and so you have some agencies 
where it turned out to be extraordinarily difficult to, you know, get any juice out of that, uh, uh, out of this. Right. And so, um, very, very difficult uh, for them. And we understood that. We engaged with them. We went back and forth. And, and it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't possible to get a whole lot out. And that is what it is. And that, you know, I think that that was a good, um, that was a good kind of lesson. Um, and in other places, we decided we wanted to spend, right, of our budget. We wanted to, um, the, the government wanted to, uh, you know, uh, they were willing to impose more costs and, and sort of having those conversations and how, uh, you know, the budget is not kind of the only filter, just, just like analysis is not the only filter for deciding what policy we want to proceed with. It's an important one. It's important input, but it's not the only one. And same for the budget. There are other factors uh, at issue. And so kind of working through uh, you know, at least in my mind, you know, we're implementing the budget. We've got the budget that we're focused on, but there are lots of other considerations. Um, and so kind of integrating all of those uh, is, um, is, uh, is a, was an, was an interesting experience. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think, um, I think I also, um, you know, did not, um, at the beginning, we had a lot of deregulatory actions that were um, that were low hanging fruit, uh, if you will. They were um, kind of notices and circulars and letters and things like that from the prior administration um, that uh, we, our, our team, working with the, the staff of the age of the issuing agency, had decided were. Um, you know, sort of net net costers, if you will. They they imposed a lot of costs that were not likely justified by those benefits. We wanted to pull them back, but they included no analysis in the initial documents. And I think you know we had I have you know I think a lot of us have long talked about the the one of the the, the challenge of you know sort of subregulatory guidance and changing requirements through guidance and things like that. But I think when you really go through sort of transaction by transaction and look at them across the government, you know in and see dozens and dozens and dozens of them, it starts to get kind of scary. You know, this is really the, the way the government's operating, like to a significant degree, really just putting out lots of these guidance documents that have an enormous effect. Um, and so we, we granted partial credit. That's another thing that I think a lot of people did not um, understand uh, is that, you know, for a lot of those types of actions, we only granted one and two out credit, but we did not grant credit for purposes of the budget. I think that's really important that people know that. Um, and that may not be clear from our annual reports because we did not provide the, that level of, of, a, of detail in our accounting. We had an extraordinary amount of detail, but that piece of information was not in there. So, uh, so people could not, they would have to sort of go through the individual rules to figure out the extent to which each entry counted for purposes of the cost dollar cost budget. Um, and so that, you know, I, in my view, that was too much to ask of the public and, and, you know, we shouldn't have done it. And in the future, I think if this comes back, um, you know, that's something where we should provide that detail, that layer of detail. Um, but that was uh, another thing is just, you know, how do you, how do you, the, the sort of partial credit system, that was something that I think we came up with along the way that we did not 
envision that early on. I mean, I, I did it in the transition team working on all this, this sort of doing awarding partial credit, but I think that was a good compromise um, to kind of re reward getting rid of some of those guidances that were uh, very costly, but still not, you know, not going all the way because, you know, I think I really do think analysis and I think transparency of the analysis is important. And if they can't provide those two things, then, then we can't give it, we can't, we just couldn't give it budget credit. So that's a, you know, one thing we sort of uh, came made up, uh, not made up, but we, we, we further developed like along the way. And I think it was a, a good, a good way of operating. And you mentioned some of that sub-regulatory guidance from the previous administration uh, that the agencies repealed, but you also wrote about some of the deregulatory initiatives that the Obama administration had started that the agencies finalized uh, in the first few months of the Trump administration. What were some of those bipartisan ideas? Um, let's see if I... Um... There were some, um, there were, there were a number of these that, that, uh, that flowed from the Obama administration's retrospective review effort. Um, and they, you know, these are ones that were very carefully thought through by the Obama administration. Uh, they went through them in great detail and they decided that these were rules that they should uh, that were not net beneficial, uh, and that, the, you know, should be, should be changed, materially changed or eliminated. That's another point to make here, of course, is that a lot of the, the cost savings doesn't flow from the repeal. It's not necessarily binary that you either have the rule or don't have the rule. In many cases, we're reducing the burden of rules. So, you know, we're not saying just, you know, anything goes, um, but a lot of those actions were, were rolling, were rolling back, uh, not eliminating, but rolling back um, uh, previous requirements. There was a, um, there was one that was a, um, uh, and I don't know, Jason, we're, we should include this example. Maybe we can, we, you can go back and later and decide whether to include it. But there was one um, where uh, I think it was in uh, uh, sort of na uh, native peoples in Alaska would, um, they had an, an in incidental take of, um, some migratory birds, and they would use the um, feathers and the claws and things like that to make jewelry, and they would sell it. Uh, and, you know, they this is an important uh, source of income for a lot of people who are uh, isolated from, you know, a lot of uh, urban centers and, and commerce, and it's an important source of income for them. And the birds were being taken uh, anyway. They were already passing away. And so that that this effort allowed us to actually allow them to actually make a little money in, in the process and not just discard uh, those elements. Um, and so the Obama administration thought that that was an appropriate change, and we didn't disagree with them. And we let it proceed. But the but the the bigger point I think on on this is that you know to my mind. You know, th those uh, there were a lot of those uh, re uh, regulatory reforms that were started by the Obama administration, and we carried through. And I think that demonstrates that a lot of this is actually uh, bipartisan. There's a lot of uh, a lot of these changes were very reasonable. Uh, I, well, I think, of course, you know, most of all of them were reasonable, but but I think a lot of them there's there uh, is a bipartisan view across administrations 
that they were important reforms. And so, you know, a suggestion that we should not, you know, award credit in the budget because it was started by the prior administration to me is just a little, I, I don't understand it because I, you know, there are plenty of regulatory actions and deregulatory actions that should be continued across administrations. You know, the idea that every, you know, we should just stop everything and on a dime and go in the opposite direction. You know, maybe that's not, maybe that's not so sensible. Maybe we should be looking for a little bit of continuity, uh, at least in some of these regulatory actions and deregulatory actions were, you know, a little bit of continuity across ad administrations of very different philosophical uh, perspectives. So I, I think that's a great thing about the budget, actually, and I, I don't understand where that, how that criticism is. Um, I just don't get it. Yeah, stability is one of the main things we're looking for in administration, right? Right. Um, my next question had to do kind of with things that you would think would apply across administrations. You talked about kind of the OIRA process of deciding whether an action was regulatory or deregulatory. And some of the examples you used were uh, the rules that were market enabling or some that harmonized some of the international regulatory rules. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right. So I think some people said, oh, no, there's a there's a cost cap. There's a regulatory budget. Now we're not going to see any rules and we need some rules. There are some rules that are really important. If we don't get these rules, uh, you know, we won't be able to open markets. We won't be able to do some important things that need to be done. Well, we wanted to make sure that, you know, a lot of thoughtful regulatory activity could proceed. We do not think that, you know, all regulations are per se bad. That is not, that is not the view of, of the team that developed and implemented this is to have, you know, a, just to have a budget. Families have budgets. Businesses have budgets. Everybody in America has to live on a budget. Why shouldn't regulators also have to live on a budget when they impose new regulatory costs? It's a pretty, a pretty basic idea. I think when you talk to normal people and you said they find out that the government didn't have a budget before, they say, what are you talking about? How's that? How's that possible? But a budget doesn't mean you can't do anything. It just means you have to do it in a thoughtful way. We wanted to make sure that this type of regulatory activity, the market enabling regulatory activity could proceed. So we categorize those rules as deregulatory, um, uh, sort of as a judgment call. Uh, and I think that it's very good because you have, uh, for example, um, you know, our, our commercial space regulations were horribly out of date. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't, it was very difficult to launch a, a rocket. If you're a, you know, a, a commercial space company to launch, to launch private rockets, it was an enormously complex process. Uh, most of them ended up just getting waivers from the requirements, which is that really that great to just, you know, be operating by waiver every time. Um, and so we brought those uh, decades old rules up to date. Uh, so that we could actually have commercial space launches. And now we have them all the time. And I think it's great uh, to allow the market in that area to flourish uh, and innovation to come up. And, and, the, and, the, and the, uh, so, so anytime, basically, um, you know, we were having a, a regulatory change, usually around innovative technologies that allowed them to come into being more. So we had this in the area of, on drone technology, of vehicle-to-vehicle uh, uh, -vehicle communications, a, a, a wide range of regulatory act activity, typically around 
new technologies, categorize those as, as deregulatory. Um, and then the other one you mentioned is, is uh, uh, regulatory cooperation. I think this is another really important area because there are, um, you know, you may have, uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, you know, you, you may have one standard, let's say for the opening of a bottle of, you know, of Coca-Cola, right, or soda, you have the opening be three quarters of an inch is the requirement in America. And maybe it's, you know, one inch in Canada. Well, what difference does it make if it's three quarters of an inch or one inch? Nobody cares. It was just picked arbitrarily and the regulatory cooperation efforts endeavor to basically harmonize that standard. That's basically arbitrary to eliminate the, the, the cost, the friction of having to have two different production lines for something that's really just not important. doesn't provide any benefits uh, one way or the other. There's no more benefit to one over the other. And so uh, we really wanted to make sure that those efforts to streamline uh, standards and to have to reduce cross-border regulatory friction um, proceeded, you know, apace. And we actually tried to increase those efforts, uh, tr tried to increase that that type of regulatory activity. And we categorize that as deregulatory um, because it does, it does facilitate uh, facilitate market activity it enhances it and I, I think that's that's great so just thinking about the wide range of, of tools that you've discussed uh, just in this conversation the traditional OIRA cost benefit analyses and 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 uh, the unified agenda this new the 13771 reg budget and the two for one uh, standard and the retrospective review uh, program that the Obama administration really put front and center um, in the second half of, its, of the administration. That's a lot for OIRA to do. And on the one hand, I think it's good that OIRA has many tools in the toolbox. It's not just like a single-minded, uh, one-size-fits-all approach um, that's you know, easily gamed. Um, having multiple tools probably improves the accountability of, of the agencies. On the other hand, you know, it could risk th spreading OIRA pretty thin if it has all of these things um, in play. How do you tend to think about it from an institutional perspective? What, what's the right balance for OIRA to strike between, you know, avoiding a single-minded focus on one particular tool or, 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 or criterion versus having so many that it's hard to, to do them all justice? Yeah. Um, well, you know, uh, Adam, what we really tried to do was integrate the budget into the existing architecture. So we really did not want to, and I, I, again, this is something that I just, I, I think maybe just got lost because of the focus on, you know, the, the regulatory reform efforts. Um, but we really did not want to displace the existing uh, processes and architecture and uh, and distract OIRA from its its uh, you know its sort of core longstanding um, responsibilities, which are you know immense and incredibly important. And I, I um, so our our the design of this program really integrated them. So the two for one, for example, you know the unified agenda process was a was a process for in, enforcing the budget and for carrying out a 12866 function. You know, the unified agenda uh, uh, came into being, I think, first through 12291 of, of President Reagan, but then 12866 of President Clinton. These are executive orders. Um, and so OIR was carrying out its ordinary role, right, in that, in that respect, and is able to 
uh, account for the budget. It did the same thing previously with Dodd-Frank, you know, accounting for regulations that flow from Dodd-Frank. Every administration has policy priorities. And this is something that I, you know, not not that I'm, I'm cheering on necessarily the pri policy priorities of the current administration, but I think they, they would do well to recognize that there are many existing features of the process at OIRA that can be used by uh, reformers of all philosophical persuasions. The architecture need not be discarded and replaced, um, you know, every few years. There, they are, um, you know, Executive Order 12866, for example, you know, reflects a compromise of, across, of people of very different, you know, uh, perspectives. Um, OMB Circular A4 is a compromise document, you know, people on, on both sides of the spectrum, you know, hate things about it and like things about it. And that's why it stood the test of time. Um, that, that, that's why those documents have made it through administrations of both, both parties, because there's something to like and something to, to hate, I guess, for everyone. Then it's sort of a detente. Um, we didn't want to discard that architecture. We could have. We thought about it. We, we went through it extensively. We had many iterations of this that that uh, included discarding uh, or replacing uh, some of that stuff. And we decided ultimately that that's, you know, Na uh, Naomi gave a speech where she said, um, you know, how I learned to stop worrying and, and, and embrace 12866. And it was, uh, and, and what she was, what she was getting at was that, you know, yes, there's stuff in here that we don't like, um, but we can, we can uh, create our own uh, tools and integrate them in. And then if the next administration wants to get rid of them, they can do that. But the core architecture uh, should remain in place. And so that was, so I mentioned the agenda, but also ordinary regulatory review. How does that start? That starts with the significance determination process. So an agency says, um, you know, in a, in a, in a six months, we would like to propose a new rule um, and we don't think it's significant. And OIRA says, well, you know, prove it. Let's see some, let's see some data. And so they go through it, they hash it out and they decide, uh, this is, you know, at a professional staff level, they decide, okay, this, this action is actually going to be significant. Maybe it's not economically significant, but it's policy significant or something else. Um, and so as a, what we did is we said, okay, as a part of that significance determination process, also talk about the budget, the regulatory budget. Okay, so it's it's one additional part of the conversation. It's not a new conversation. Um, and, and again, in prior administrations, they did that for Dodd-Frank. Afterwards, we did that for COVID-19. It's just that the, the architecture provides for opportunities for all, all sorts of reform, and ours was the budget. And I think it was really good, and I hope it becomes a, a permanent feature because I think it, it integrates very rationally and well with the rest of the architecture. But it's not, it does not supplant that. Uh, that existing structure. We'll get back to the big picture in just a moment um, to finish. But before we do, Jace, do you have, do you have a last question? That was just going to be my final question about that budgeting architecture. Since so much of it was repealed, what would you like to see put back in as a permanent feature? What do you think the prospects are for this kind of reform in the future? Yeah, I, I think that it's very likely that a version of the budget will return. I, I hope, certainly hope it does. Um, I think next time, um, you know, we ought to emphasize more explicitly um, the, the role of the existing architecture up front so that, you know, uh, 
everyone can be assured that, you know, uh, that the ordinary analysis is being conducted. I think there should be, you know, even more transparency around the reporting. Um, but I think the budget is a very helpful organizing mechanism. As I said, you know, it, you know, every normal family in America has to live on a budget. Um, they have to make choices. Um, companies make choices, organizations, you know, religious groups, everybody has a budget that they have to work with and regulators uh, ought to have one as well. And I think, again, as I said, there was, that wasn't really a point of disagreement. I think pretty much across, you know, in the administration, there was on the transit from transition through to implementation. I think everybody agrees with the basic idea of having that budget. And I expect, I expect we'll see it return. Um, and I think there's a, I think a lot of, uh, uh, lessons have been learned uh, in, in, you know, in this first experience. Um, and I think that that will make the next uh, iteration of the budget even more uh, successful. Um, and I, I, I very much expect to see that, um, you know, see that play out in due course. Anthony, I was struck by your comment a moment ago that, that the, you and, and, and Naomi Rao and others at the, in the, in the Trump white house at OIRA, you know, you thought, you thought about, the possibilities for significant reform, major, major changes to things that the administration had inherited. But but ultimately, you stopped short of that and you created these new tools, but tried to integrate them with, with the pre-existing set of tools. Now, so much of what you guys did was, was criticized as being sort of a, a radical change to OIRA's mission. And, and I, I didn't see it that way at all. And, and as you said, you guys could have done a lot more uh, to, to change what you inherited, but you didn't. Well, now in, in the Biden administration, there are, there are calls for major, major changes to OIRA. Um, those are perennial, but we're hearing them again. Maybe changes to do away with circular A4 and rewrite it from scratch. Maybe make significant changes to the executive order 12866 architecture and all that on top of, of the of repeal of, of 13771 and, and 13777, if I remember correctly. Um, here's my question, Anthony. If the Biden administration goes big and really in, in the next two years or the next six years makes really wholesale changes to OIRA, um, what do you think that means for the future of OIRA long term? Do you think that OIRA would snap back to its current status? Or do you think that if the Biden administration makes, you know, major, major changes, that future administrations will, will feel less, um, less wedded to the, the pre-Biden administration architecture? Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's early. Um, and, you know, we really sort of need to wait and see what happens. Um, it, these reforms could take uh, shape in, in a lot of different ways <clears throat> if they proceed. Um, but I think, you know, they should, uh, they should exercise caution because I think it's very, you know, it, it, they could have a very destabilizing effect depending on the ultimate form uh, over the long run, because if, you know, if, if the pendulum swings, uh, to, to mix metaphors a bit here, if the pendulum swings, you know, very far in one direction, it will in, you know, undoubtedly swing in the opposite direction, uh, in the, in the next administration, uh, if it's a Republican administration. And I, I, um, I, I think that, you know, again, we, we sort of stood down on some of those, a lot of, a lot of conservatives do not like a whole lot about A4. They do not like a whole lot about 12866. 
Um, and they, they wanted, we wanted to, to change a lot of that. Um, but we sort of respected the longstanding bipartisan consensus on that court architecture. Um, and, <clears throat> and if that, if that changes, it's going to make it very difficult <laughs> to, uh, I don't think it would be a return to a four. I think it would be, you know, in the, uh, even further, the, the pendulum would swing in the opposite direction. And I think, you know, we're talking, we're not talking about a one specific rule. We're talking about the underlying analytical framework for all regulatory activity across the government. It ha has enormous implications. <laughs> You're basically changing the, the way the, the math, uh, that goes into rules. It, it's enormously important. Um, and if it's, if that math, if that analytical framework has changed significantly, it will be changed by a, by a Republican administration significantly. And I don't think that, that I, I think it's, I think that the, 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 it would be better to have more, uh, it would be best if the sort of <laughs> existing, you know, the longstanding bipartisan, uh, consensus is, is maintained on that core architecture. Uh, well, our listeners can't see, but we can see that on the, the big, big set of bookshelves behind you on Camry, there's a copy of the Federalists sort of right in the middle. And if there's one theme that Hamilton refer, referred back to, returned back to over and over again in his writings on administration, it was his worries about mutable administration and, and each new administration coming in and really, really changing things just for the sake of change. And, and of course, that's a that's a bipartisan temptation. Every new administration, every administration does it or is tempted to do it. And um, we'll see what happens in, in the current administration. Just a few notes <clears throat> before we go. Um, President Biden, as we record this in October, President Biden nominated Professor Ricky Revez of NYU to be his OIRA administrator. His, his nomination is still pending. Uh, Ricky actually joined us for a podcast here at the Gray, at Gray Matters uh, right after the last presidential election. In November of 2020, he and Michael Livermore of Virginia uh, came on to, to do an episode focused on their then new book on, uh, on, on, on cost-benefit analysis of regulations. Um, so listeners can check that out. And then a few months after that, in January of 2021, when we had a whole series of webinars on um, the future of various regulatory or, or legal issues in the in the then uh, new Biden administration, we had Professor Livermore and two others to come back for an entire conversation about the future of OIRA. So that's available on the website and also in the podcast from January of 2021. And just one last word about this symposium. Like I said, Anthony's essay is part of a broader symposium that was published recently online at the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. I mentioned Senator James Langford had the lead essay titled uh, "For a Regulatory Budget: Successful Policies Must Be Made Should Be Made Permanent." There <clears throat> were three other essays I just want to flag really quickly um, that really show how the, this project covered the waterfront. Uh, James Roll of Mercatus wrote a paper focused on lessons learned from states on on regulatory budgets. Uh, Andrea Renda of the European University Institute wrote an essay on regulatory budgeting lessons learned. Uh, from, from Europe and abroad. And then Laura Jones of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and, and Patrick McLaughlin of the Mercatus Center, who again co-organized this symposium with us, they also have an essay for, for measurement options for regulatory budgeting. So please check out all those essays, but, but first and foremost, check out the essay by our guest today, Anthony Campo. It's, his paper was titled, Regulatory Budgeting in the U.S. Federal Government, a First-Hand Account of the Initial Experience and recommendations for future regulatory budgets. 
Anthony, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Adam. And thanks to all of you for tuning in once again. Please join us for the next episode of Gray Matters. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter.